When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. A frail and sickly president elected to deal with the internal affairs of the nation drove himself within inches of the grave in a crusade to sell an idea about the world to a skeptical American public. But it was more than a policy he was selling. The president was selling an idea about the way that his office and democracy function. In the end, the idea, the policy and the man would all fail in the effort. Our whistle stop today is September 25th, 1919. President Woodrow Wilson is speaking in Pueblo, Colorado, at the dedication of Memorial Hall. It was given that name to memorialize all those who died in the war to end all wars, World War I. Of course, at the time, it was only known as the World War. They didn't need to give it a number, although that's one of our themes today. The World War is a term, it turns out, according to Scott Berg's wonderful biography, Wilson, that the 28th president himself coined. He was given a list of of possible options for naming the war, uh, and that's the one he came up with. Anyway, Wilson was in Pueblo not to name the war, but he was at the end of a more than 20-day-long, 9,000-mile national sales trip on a train on behalf of a global treaty that would prevent Another world war. You wouldn't need to ever call anything World War II with his new idea for a world order, or so he thought. He'd come to Pueblo to deliver a speech in favor of the League of Nations. Though it was a full year before his term would be up, this would be the last speech that Woodrow Wilson would ever give as president. The building was so new it didn't have any seats yet, and it was sweltering hot on that September day. The president had just taken a car ride around the local fairgrounds. Thousands of well-wishers were there, and he waved to them on his way to Memorial Hall. When he got to Memorial Hall, he was unsteady on his feet. He'd been sick. He shouldn't have been on the train trip at all, but it was a cause for which he had devoted himself down to the last cells of his body. He stumbled. The agent traveling with him caught him by the arm and lifted him up the steps, and Wilson did not object. This will have to be a short speech, Wilson said to the newspaper men who were traveling with him and had heard this speech almost 30 times before, maybe 40 times. Aren't you fellows getting pretty sick of this, Wilson said. 
Wilson's agent, one of about a half a dozen Secret Service agents who were traveling with him, was concerned because Wilson had never asked or allowed anybody to give him any help before. But this time he was allowing him to, and the agent stood by the side of the stage for fear that Wilson would collapse. He did not collapse on stage. That drama would happen later. If you want to draw a spectrum of the presidents and the way they've communicated, because you are without hobbies or friendships, at one end you would put Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States, and at the other end you'd put Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States. Wilson was the believer in the power of neoclassical oratory, kind of what we enjoy here at Whistlestop. Good ideas argued persuasively and in the laboratory-like conditions would create the best policies and lead to the most healthy functioning of democracy. This wasn't huzzas and, and uh, boobery for the masses, meant to just whip them into a lather. This was just to appeal to their head more than their heart. So as a president, Wilson tried to play this role. He was not an advocate for a point of view, or so he saw himself, and that's part of our story, but he was a convener of ideas and a presenter of them to the country, and he expected the rational citizenry to rally behind the power of a well-constructed argument. Donald Trump, of course, is the other sort. The president sees his political base as his only audience, not a whole nation, but his base. And the audience is not to be presented with a series of reasoned arguments, but to be inspired and inflamed and convinced not through argument, but through emotional appeals. They don't need a lot of fancy talk. In fact, the fancy talk of that neoclassical oratory is proof that the idea is no good. All that is necessary is assertion. There is no interest in convincing those who are not already on the team. In the first week of August in 2017, the president issued a couple of tweets testifying to the strength of his presidency, and he talked about it, though, only in the terms of his base. The Trump base is far bigger and stronger than ever before, the president declared. The traditional thing is to talk about broad support across the country. Presidents often claim wide appeal even though they don't have it, or... They direct their appeals to a broader audience, but President Trump doesn't do that. He thinks of his job as basically connecting with and strengthening his base. All right, now we got to step back here. We've gone from September of 1919. Now let's go back to December of 1918. President Woodrow Wilson lands in Brest, France, on his way to Paris to negotiate the post-World War order. It's the culmination of a strategy he had kind of put into place when he initially led America into the conflict in April of 1917. Wilson, even when he joined the First World War or had America join the First World War, it was based on this idea that America could play a role in the post-war order. And that's why on January 8th of 1918, almost a year before the president would be in Paris, he gave a speech, his most famous speech, the 14-point speech, outlining the 14 elements he felt were essential to a lasting peace in Europe. It was America's moral case for being in the war and an outline for the peace that Wilson wanted to see after it was over. So, the final and perhaps most famous of the 14 points called for global cooperation in order to secure a true peace. So that's what he was over there doing in December of 1918 in Paris, creating that global cooperative order and the League of Nations. That's what it was. So he's in he's in Paris figuring out the post-war order. And key to it is this post-war structure called the League of Nations, which would keep war from ever happening again. 
After the war, Wilson believed that no lasting peace would ever be established, that the European powers would fall into further fighting over the lands and colonial rights and all the rest of it, unless the American sashayed in with his impartiality and helped settle out the post-war order to create a system to adjudicate these kinds of fights should they come up in the future. He personally went to Europe to attend the peace conference. No previous president had ever done this, and his, his allies were not exactly keen. He took with him his secretary of state and Colonel Edward House, Wilson's chief advisor on European politics and diplomacy during the First World War. He took no Republican members of the Republican-controlled Senate. This was a mistake. We'll come back to that notion later. So how, how committed was Wilson to this idea of himself as an honest broker? When he was in Europe, he visited American soldiers and celebrated the Allied victory with them, but he didn't visit any of the battle sites. He feared that if he saw the horror of war, it would prejudice him against Germany, and that would keep him from doing what was necessary to achieve peace. Again, he didn't want to be prejudiced towards Germany because he wanted to be this impartial fellow who was the honest broker, could get everybody to agree to everything, set up a structure, no more war in the future. All right, so we won't go into all the difficulties that he encountered when he was over there trying to put together this peace process. But by the way, while he's over there, hugely popular, massively popular, met in Rome and Paris, all across Europe as a as a celebrity. Basically, Wilson proposed that a League of Nations be formed to provide this structure for addressing grievances because he felt that the war had come to pass because the nations had no way to work out their disputes. But he didn't get what he wanted. So he wanted this impartial post-war order that wasn't going to punish Germany so excessively. But that's not what he got because he was basically forced to settle for a post-world order that would punish Germany for its role in the Great War. And as a result of that punishment, it faced a debt it could never hope to repay. It surrendered colonies. It lost a bunch of its land. It had its army reduced considerably. All of those punishments would later, of course, lead to the condition or contribute to the conditions that led to World War II, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. But in taking those hits, Wilson did win the inclusion of the League of Nations. And, and this is important because while Wilson was losing on the don't punish Germany front, the existence of the League of Nations in the, in the agreement allowed him to convince himself, and he became adamantly convinced of this, that if the League of Nations were in place, even if Germany was being punished, it wouldn't lead to a future war because the League of Nations would stop it. So he was willing to take the hit on the one front because he thought the other was worth preserving. Okay, so boom, comes back to the United States. Cheering crowds, uh, man astride the world. But while he's been away, the Republicans, who wanted to go on the field trip with him, have been building support for basically knocking down whatever he came back with. Because we're in a, a time where the Republican Party has a significant isolationist portion that doesn't want to get involved and in, get entangled in a, in a post-World War. The World War itself is proof that we don't want to be, as, an, as a country, engaged in this kind of messy, stupid war being fought by the Europeans. There's so much going on right now during this period in American history, it's hard to fit in. And we won't do it, but there's some just fantastic hinge points here because America is, after the First World War, struggling to basically stop being associated with the world after having seen what penalty and punishment that could cause for the country. But of course, Wilson is basically saying, too late, guys. He says at this point, we are citizens of the world. The tragedy of our times is that we do not know this. Well, of course, America would learn that in the Second World War, and we're re-adjudicating some of these fights now. As the nationalist Trump supporters want to withdraw America from the world, think America doesn't have an obligation in every corner of the world. 
Others argue, of course, that America has an indispensable role, that America is an indispensable nation. President comes back. His main combatant in the Republican-controlled Senate is Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts. He's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's the leader of the Republicans in Congress. He's been battling the president for six years at this point, and Lodge at this uh, stage tells his friend Teddy Roosevelt, I never expected to hate anyone in politics with the hatred I feel towards Wilson. Basically, felt like Wilson was a know-it-all and treated him with disdain. Cabot Lodge himself was not a fellow of the common man. He himself thought of himself as kind of a, as a brainiac egghead and, and thought Wilson was kind of an imposter, not learned enough. So the Republicans at this point hold majorities in both houses, though only a narrow majority in the Senate. Treaties must be ratified by the Senate, two-thirds of the Senate. So Wilson comes back and he's counting on 46 Democratic senators. Lodge had 15 Republican senators who were totally unwilling to vote for the treaty. Under any circumstances, they became known as the irreconcilables. So then there were 34 Republicans who were called reservationists, and they said they would vote for this treaty if it were tweaked. So those were the folks that Wilson and Lodge were going to fight over. Wilson hoped to build momentum through his oratory and his calm reason. Lodge would basically slow things down to a crawl and examine the treaty to death. And his hope was that the more people learned about the treaty, the more that would expose the treaty's flaws. So I'm going to now quote from Scott Berg's book on Wilson, a fun little anecdote about Lodge and his Senate tactics. In the battles between Senate leaders and presidents, uh, there's some just great stories. And this is not a bad one. At the start of this contest, momentum seemed to be in the president's favor. I don't see how we are ever going to defeat this proposition, said freshman senator, a Republican, Senator James Watson of Indiana. He was talking to Lodge. Lodge sighed, ah, my dear James, I do not propose to try to beat it by direct frontal attack, but by the indirect method of reservations. Later, Watson encountered uh, Lodge and said, suppose the president accepts the treaty with your reservations, then we're in the league. Lodge grinned and explained how much Wilson hated him, Lodge. Never under any set of circumstances in this world, Lodge said calmly, could Wilson be induced to accept a treaty with Lodge reservations appended to it? Unconvinced, Watson, the Indiana senator, said that that was a, quote, slender thread on which to hang so great a cause. A slender thread, Lodge scoffed. Why, it is as strong as any cable, with its strands wired and twisted together. So Lodge's key tactic was delay. He delayed, delayed, delay. He scheduled a month's worth of hearings in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then to slow things down further, he called for a reading of the entire 200-some-odd-page treaty, which he read himself. It took him two weeks. Then, after the reading was done, he called the first of 60 witnesses. He found a lot wrong with the Versailles Treaty, but his opposition, the Versailles Treaty, of which the League of Nations was a part, but the key thing was Article 10. Okay, and the Article 10 read, the members of the League undertake to respect and preserve against external aggression the territorial and existing political independence of all members of the League. A council shall advise upon the means by which this obligation shall be fulfilled. Okay, so the point was there. The League's charter obliged members of the League to defend the other members from unprovoked attack. It's basically like NATO. And so... Lodge didn't want the United States to be on the hook for countries it didn't care about. Wilson's argument was that without it, without that Article 10, that the League would essentially be a debating society. Again, Lodge's argument, the U.S. would be drawn into a series of stupid wars 
all over the damn world. <laughs> Little did he know what would end up happening. But anyway, he, all over the damn world just because of some damn treaty. Here's his argument. We're going to read now from a little of Lodge. Henry Cabot Lodge. Under Article 1, he's talking, of course, about the League. If King Hussein, as an example, appealed to us for aid and protection against external aggression affecting his independence, we should be bound to give that aid and protection and to send American soldiers to Arabia. It is not relevant to say this is unlikely to occur. The fact that we shall not be called upon does not alter the right which the king possesses to demand the sending of American troops to Arabia in order to preserve his independence against the assaults of the Wahhabis or Bedouins. This illustrates to me the point which is to me the most objectionable in the League as it stands, the right of the other powers to call out American troops and American ships to go any, to any part of the world, an obligation we are bound to fulfill under the terms of the treaty. I know the answer full well that, of course... They could not be sent without action by Congress. Congress would have no choice, though, of acting in good faith. And under Article 10, any member of the League summons us, there would be no escape except by a breach of faith. Is it too much to ask that provision should be made that American troops and American ships should never be sent anywhere or ordered to take part in any conflict except after the deliberate, careful action of the American people expressed through their chosen representatives in Congress? Wilson did not want to give up on Article 10. It was the crux of the whole thing for him. And so he said, okay, I'm going to go speak across the nation and put pressure on you in the Senate to convince those reservationist senators and to put pressure on anybody who was thinking about voting against the League. Now, this is founded on a belief in oratory that's quite important in our study of the presidency here. And so we're going to take a little moment to examine this. And I'll build a lot of my work here on the wonderful work of uh, J. Michael Hogan and his book, Woodrow Wilson's Western Tour, which is about the train tour that Wilson takes here. And this is the kind of splendid find that our crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, puts before me. So Hogan carefully lays out how Wilson, from his teenage years, was a fan of neoclassical oratory. He didn't just like a well-argued speech. He believed that democracy depended on it. One of the fun things about the Wilson presidency is that he thought more about the office than arguably any other president. He was a scholar, a Ph.D., and a student of how men used argument to arrange the affairs of their countrymen. If today we are in an age of non-experts, Wilson was at the other end of that spectrum, the height of the expert age. This means... That when we think about his presidency, it's a story about the limits of the egghead application of a theory when it comes to actual practice. So we talked about that a little in our last episode with Carter. Carter had theories, too, and then they bumped up against reality in, in the actual office. Now, Carter, like Wilson, had been a governor, so neither was without the understanding. It wasn't pure eggheadism. They understood the practical realities of governing. But what I always like about Wilson is that his experience allows us to embrace a general rule. And that general rule is it's always harder than it seems in theory. We usually think of that, of course, with respect to campaigns. But the promises of campaigns are ill thought through and they're made in the moment just to get the huzzahs and people in the voting booth. Wilson obviously had carefully contemplated some of these ideas. And I return to the difference between Wilson's view of the presidency before he came into office and his view once his wheels of state started to roll along the road. As a professor, Wilson wrote that the president is, quote, at liberty both in law and conscience to be as big a man as he can. So essentially no constraints. You can be as big as you want to be. Just fulfill your imagination, boy, and then rise to your level. 
He wrote that line, of course, before he'd set foot in the Oval Office. And so once he once he actually started serving, he quickly learned about the limits and constraints of the president. The president can't be as big as he wants to be. Other people are going to constrain them. And here's how he later described the Senate, which would thwart him. Quote, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. So. We see this story in the League of Nations, too. Wilson comes to learn that his theory about oratory has its limits. Wilson, and here we're going back to Hogan, Wilson, quote, embodied the cultural idea of the educated and principled orator who could be trusted as a steward of public interest. And he'd been successful twice before in his presidency. And Hogan demonstrates that Wilson had in selling his new freedom initiative, which was a package of domestic programs to reduce tariffs on imported goods, reform the banking system, bust the trusts. He'd been successful, and he'd also been successful in the run-up to the war in convincing the country that it should prepare for hostilities, even though Wilson said he was committed to keeping the peace. So he'd been successful in two instances in terms of going public or over the heads of Congress to the people. And here's how Hogan talks about Wilson's vision as it was formed in those successful gambits and then also, of course, in his time as a professor. He envisioned the president serving as the spokesman for public opinion in great national debates. Rather than promote some narrow partisan agenda, Wilson's rhetorical president assumed the obligation to educate, interpret, and give expression to public opinion. He did not manipulate or even persuade public opinion, but rather served as a spokesman for the real sentiment and purpose of the country. So President Wilson is serving domestically in this oratorical function as the honest broker that he thought he was when he went over to Europe. His theory, of course, was in tension with the idea that government was designed so that it didn't need popular oratory. Remember from your deep embedded knowledge of the whistle-stop campaigning that in the early parts of the American experience, any president who campaigned for the job and showed skill for oratory and also the skill for inflaming the citizenry was showing that he lacked the temperament for the job itself because the job didn't require that you get people up on their feet and at the edges of their seats because that was all antithetical to the vision of the original uh, founders. If the American system was designed to resist the power of popular oratory because if it was founded on oratory, then the president and popular opinion could whipsaw the country, interrupting the effective operation of the government in the service of transient opinion. This is the argument essentially in a great book by Jeffrey Tullis, The Rhetorical Presidency, which anybody who wants to discuss the power of the presidency and the change in oratory and the role that oratory has played over the course of of the 20th century, you've got to have this in your library. His argument, and I'm generalizing here, uh, of course, is that Wilson's effort was part of a dangerous trend. Wilson relied too heavily on the speech making, and that, that then kicked off a kind of um, view of the presidency that presidents after him have distorted. And it's a distortion of the founder's intent, I should say. There's a larger theory here, which I'll bow to, but which I which I love and we're not going to go into too much. But Tullis talks about basically this being a second constitution and central to that idea of the second constitution is this presidential statecraft that is active. But that's in tension with the first constitution, which is that congressionally led weaker executive not based on inflaming public opinion. The second constitution, Tullis argues, puts a premium on active and continuous presidential leadership of popular opinion. And it's buttressed by the extra constitutional factors like the mass media and primaries, which I love because you listened to your whistle stops earlier. Primaries, remember when they grow in the Democratic Party, 
basically around the time, you know, in the Republican Party, it's Eisenhower takes advantage of the primaries. And then, of course, Reagan takes advantage of them more. And they argue basically it allows them to go around the party system. But when you have caucuses and a party system, that's actually essentially it's elites making choices and not direct election by the voters. In other words, by people who are thinking through the issues, not the inflamed mob. I'm describing this, of course, through the perspective of people who hold this viewpoint. So the primaries are where you know popular votes connect the governing process more directly into the immediate passions of the people. Now, Hogan argues the frame for evaluating Wilson's speech, this crucial set of speeches for the League of Nations is wrong. That Tullis gets it a little bit wrong and that Wilson understood the framers' intent. He didn't seek to whip up popular opinion. In fact, Wilson said, it is not wise, it is not possible to guide national policy under the impulse of passion. But Wilson also basically felt that the first constitutional system was broken. And then he thought basically what was out of whack was that Congress was in too much in control and that he, Wilson, wanted to realign the relationships and balances of power so that government could quickly react to the changes of the day with a strong executive, but still retain its democratic character. So I guess my point here is that when trying to evaluate, there's a tug of war over Wilson and whether he was trying to find a balance or whether he kicked off what is now an imbalance in the presidency and this um, obsession with oratory. So one final little point here before we get back to the speech is that Hogan basically argues that Wilson started out in this neoclassical tradition, but then he kind of fell apart and he strayed from his purpose. And that's because as he was giving the speeches, almost as he went through, first of all, he's incredibly sick and that becomes part of this. But as he goes through this train trip, he becomes more and more kind of partisan. And that's because he has this strong moralizing streak. And by the way, he sent all these kids to their deaths and he's seen the ravaging uh, horror of war and he wants to stop that from happening again. And so this moralizing streak for me is, is exemplified in this quote, I would rather lose in a cause that will someday win than win in a cause that will someday lose. So that's why this trip is so interesting for me, because it's a theory about the presidency. It's the theory about oratory. and. It breaks down to this in terms of how you see the history of Wilson. Here's how Hogan frames it. The Western tour to Wilson's admirers represented the purest and best of Woodrow Wilson, using his powers to the end of his life to promote and lock in peace. For Wilson's detractors, it was a willful, ill-conceived act of vanity and desperation. So before he took the trip, though, Wilson really, really sick in total decline, both physically and mentally. Uh, on several occasions in July and early August, he basically kind of lost the theme and thread while he was describing the treaty. Because, of course, before he sets off on the train trip, he's there's a public battle going on about the treaty between him and Lodge. And here is what Wilson said before he set off on the train trip. I know that I am at the end of my tether, but my friends on the hill say that this trip is necessary to save the treaty and I am willing to make whatever personal sacrifice is required. For if the treaty should be defeated, God only knows what would happen to the world as a result of it. The president acknowledged that such a trip might mean, quote, the giving up of my life. But he said, I will gladly make the sacrifice to save the treaty. Wilson's physician, Rear Admiral Grayson, had told the president that as a man of 60, he had to consider his health. And the president responded, I do not want to do anything foolhardy, but the League of Nations is now in crisis. And if it fails, I hate to think what would happen to the world. I cannot put my personal safety, my health in the balance against my duty. I must go. 
So on Wednesday, September 3rd, 1919, at 6.40 in the evening, the president traveled to the Union Station in his straw boater, blue blazer, white trousers, and white shoes. Two dozen reporters joined him, along with eight Secret Service men. The train was seven cars long, and the president's blue car, the last one, the Mayflower, was hitched up at the end. It was an ambitious trip at 9,981 miles, 27 days, 26 major stops, and 10 rear platform speeches a day. Every state west of the Mississippi, except four, would be visited, and the train would poke from the Canadian border down to the Mexican line. Why the west? Well, Wilson had been reelected by appealing to the voters out west, and his argument to them and their argument back to him, or what he had thought he knew about the west, was that they were more open to new ideas. President's doctors had pleaded with him to rest. He was scheduled, but you heard that schedule. There's no rest scheduled in it. And he was already feeling behind. I'm in a nice fix, he told his press secretary. I've not had a single minute to prepare my speeches. I do not know. I shall get the time. For during the past few weeks, I've been suffering from daily headaches. But perhaps tonight's rest will make me fit for the work tomorrow. Tomorrow came and the president had to face the damn press. The reporters distressed him. They ask me such foolish questions, Wilson sighed. So the president's on the train now. The president traveled from town to town facing massive crowds. School children were let out of school. Vigorous flag-waving citizens and well-wishers broke police lines to get near the train. Marching bands marched and blew their tunes. Wilson would appear in these speeches and at the back of the train car in a very formal dress. This was a period of tailored clothing right at the advent of mass-produced clothing. So you'll see future presidents in more kind of traditional suit type garb. But when Wilson spoke, he wore a long coat, a frock coat that we might mistakenly call a morning jacket like the kind you would wear with a white tie, lined with silk and the inside inscribed Mr. Dr. W. Wilson. He wore arrow shirt wing collars fastened with a mother of pearl clip to the center of his uh, right below his Adam's apple. And he wore a Dunlap and Company top hat with a gold WW inscribed on the inside. As he traveled in through Ohio, airplanes from Ohio State University zoomed overhead and dropped flowers. In Denison, Ohio, according to Gene Smith's book, When the Cheering Stopped, an old man looked up at Wilson and said, quote, I wish you success on your journey, Mr. Wilson. I lost two sons in the war, only got one left, and I want things fixed up so I won't have to lose him. When that was said, the crowd went crazy. In San Diego on September 9, 1919, the president's train arrived with a squadron of seaplanes flying overhead. He spoke to 50,000 in a stadium that had just been given a public address system. Again, this is from Gene Smith's When the Cheering Stopped. The public address system had been developed by Magnavox, and it was based on the invention of the loudspeaker which was invented in 1911. So when Wilson spoke, he didn't speak into a nice little microphone of the kind that I'm speaking into now, but he stood in a circle in the front of the stage and above him were two huge horns suspended over his head and that directed his voice to the, to the microphone that then shot it out over the loudspeakers. And those two massive horns looked like something out of Dr. Zeus that the Who's Hoozlers might have blown into. The loudspeakers were, were hidden behind flags and bunting around the platform. So the message was simple from Wilson. Here's what he said. He said, this is what the League of Nations is for. It is to prove to the nations of the world that the nations will combine against any nation that would emulate Germany's example. When you are told that the League of Nations is for any purpose but to prevent war, tell them that it is not so. He promised men in khaki will not have to cross the seas again. Men in khaki meaning soldiers. If it is not to be this arrangement, what arrangement do you suggest to secure the peace of the world? It is a case of put up or shut up. Wilson spoke of his Senate opponents saying they were contemptible quitters. 
In Kansas City, he said, I have come to fight a cause, and that cause is greater than the U.S. Senate. The world is waiting, waiting to see not whether we will take part, but whether we will serve and lead, for it has expected us to lead. More Wilson, I have come out to fight for a cause. The cause is greater than the Senate. It is greater than the government. It is as great as the cause of mankind. And I intend, in office or not, to fight that battle as long as I live. So this started to work. He's going across the land, or he felt like it started to work. And here's how uh, Scott Berg writes about the momentum. Articles initially spoke of Lodge as having taken the lead in the early innings of this great debate. But now that Wilson was swinging for the fences, the shift in the country's mood was palpable. An overnight Republican survey in Missouri revealed that the president had flipped the state from anti to pro-league because Wilson could dip into a 25000 travel fund allotted to the president. One Republican congressman from Missouri proposed a resolution providing $15,000 to defray the expenses of any senator who sought equal time on the road opposing the treaty. Be like a Lincoln and Douglas debate paid for by the taxpayers. It never happened. So now we're in Pueblo. At what would be the end of this tour, although it was not scheduled to be the end of the tour, he had more cities to stop in. The president said his speech would be short, but it went on for more than an hour. And this reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Wilson, which is not unlike one from Mark Twain. Wilson said, if I am to speak for 10 minutes, I need a week for preparation. If 15 minutes, three days. If half an hour, two days. If an hour, I'm ready now. But actually, the president had been delivering speeches across the country. So this, the length of the speech wasn't from a lack of preparation. It was emotional and fiery in support of his cause. When he arrived in Pueblo, he was just worn down to the bone, and his voice was thin and weak, but he delivered what has come to be known as one of the great speeches of all time. The president spoke of the children of the future who might fight in future wars. My clients, he explained in Pueblo, are the children. My clients are the next generation. They do not know what promises and bonds I undertook when I ordered the armies of the United States to the soil of France. But I know, and I intend to redeem my pledges to the children. They shall not be sent upon a similar errand. When the president spoke in Pueblo of Decoration Day at the cemetery in Cernes, France, there was hope, not anger, he said, that, quote, some men in public life who are now opposing the settlement for which these men died could visit such a spot as that. I wish that they could feel the moral obligation that rests upon us not to go back on those boys, but to see the thing through. He continued, there seems to me to, to stand between us and the rejection or qualification of this treaty, the serried ranks of those boys in khaki, again, soldiers. Not only those boys who came home, but those dear ghosts that still deploy upon the fields of France in those moments of Wilson's speech, he is tipping over. And this is Hogan's point. He's no longer the dispassionate orator. He's using the ghosts of the dead men to sell his case. And that's... That's where we, in looking at the League of Nations and the Wilson notion of appealing to public opinion, that's where it can go wonky. You're not using the office to tee up debates. You're using the office to deal with the passions and emotions to win your side of the debate. Wilson's press secretary would later recount that a great wave of emotion, such as I have never witnessed at a public meeting, swept through the whole amphitheater. Men were crying. Women were crying. Members of the press were crying. <laughs> And Wilson at the end said there is one thing that the American people have always always rise to and extend their hand to, and that is the truth of justice and of liberty and of peace. We've accepted that truth and we are going to be led by it, and it is going to lead us and through us the world out into pastures of quietness and peace, such as the world never dreamed of before. 
his father was a preacher. So you hear that in his voice in this speech. So the speech is over. And at about 1130 that night, Wilson's wife finds him sitting on the side of the bed. His head is pressed against the back of the chair in front of him, and the pain has grown so unbearable, he asks her to call in the doctor. And when the doctor arrived, the president was twitching, gasping for air. He complained that the walls of the tiny compartment were closing in on him. The tour had to be canceled, the doctor said. And Wilson immediately said no, because it would be seen by his opponents as a sign of weakness. He's having a stroke, and he's saying, don't you see that if you cancel the trip, Senator Lodge and his friends will say that I am a quitter and that the Western trip was a failure and the treaty will be lost? His press secretary assured him that nobody would ever consider him a quitter. And gradually, Wilson faced the truth. My dear boy, he said, crumbling, this has never happened to me before. I felt it coming on yesterday. I do not know what to do. His left arm and leg had completely numbed. I want to show them that I can still fight and that I'm not afraid. Privately, his doctor argued to him, though, that the president owed it to his country and his wife and his children to stop now before he was harmed any further. Wilson finally broke down and said he would give no more speeches and take the train back to Washington. I will surrender. And then he added, this is the greatest disappointment of my life. I don't seem to realize it, Wilson told his press secretary, but I seem to have gone to pieces. The doctor is right. I am in no condition to go on. Unable to face anyone, the president looked outside of the train window and tears rolled from his eyes. The Republican-led Senate subsequently rejected the Treaty of Versailles, which established the League and the president's Efforts to sell Title X and the League of Nations to the country and put pressure on the Senate as a result had failed. It was a spectacular failure. The treaty was not only not ratified, but Wilson destroyed his health in the process. Tullis argues that Wilson's defeat was actually a success, but not for the president. It was success for the American system. The system that, that, that Wilson had tried to reshape to have a greater balance between the needs of the moment and the democratic institutions as embodied by the Congress, and Tullis's argument is the Congress did what it's supposed to. After that stroke, for the next 17 months, the president was still president, but he was essentially an invalid. He could barely write his own name. His wife, we Edith, would disappear into his sick room with messages on which she would scrawl his signature. And this was her time of stewardship, as she called it, which we later would learn essentially meant she was running the country because we later learned the full extent of Wilson's debilitation. He died on February 3rd, 1924. After leaving the White House, they went in to live in Washington on S Street. You can go visit the house they lived in. The year-and-a-half-long act of deception while he was sick was later cited as a rationale for passage of the 25th Amendment, which lays out what must be done if a president is unable to perform the functions of his office. Two final thoughts. First, if you really want to get excited, as we often do on the Whistle Stop podcast, and make the case, you can make this one. And tell us uh, and others essentially make this case, although they don't say it explicitly. But Wilson begat Trump. Of course, they don't make it explicitly because they wrote their book before President Trump was, was a president. But the style of the presidency that Wilson embodied going and this was a building on the Teddy Roosevelt notion of the Billy pulpit going out in the country, using your oratory to lift the electorate, to get them to do what you want, is a vision that Donald Trump completely embodies. Right. He's not making an argument out of reason. He's making it simply to engage the passions of the people and get them to go his way. Although you must we must make like a huge caveat to this, that the president has actually been incredibly unsuccessful in doing this as a legislative matter. Obviously, health care, when he supported the House Republican bill and the Senate Republican bill, were wildly unpopular. His ability to sell it was actually non-existent. And so 
the spectrum doesn't really work, but in terms of in terms of its effectiveness, but in terms of the styles, they are similar than that Trump is the distillation of what Wilson was just flirting with at the beginning. And I'll now read from a collection of political scientists who are in a book called Speaking to the People by Richard Ellis. And this is essentially the Tullus version, Tullus and others who view Wilson as the beginning of this regrettable trend. Wilson placed us increasingly at the mercy of fortune, undisciplined instincts, sympathies, and antipathies, heralded the decline of the American polity. By placing presidential leadership at the center of American government, Wilson appears not only to have opened the door to what the framers had been at pains to proscribe, but also to have cut us off from the conception of the good regime that was our birthright, a conception in which institutional discourse and deliberation among the different branches would predominate. Now I interject here. So what is that argument? That argument is that the structure was set up in a way so the discourse and deliberation would take place within this carefully balanced structure. When you elevate one of the elements of the structure, which is to say the oratorical power of the president, and you don't prescribe that and the president isn't circumscribed by the norms that should exist, when the president breaks out and overuses his oratorical ability to, to swamp deliberation from the other part of the deliberative democratic system, then it hurts that system. And now we pick up again with Ellis's book, granting to each generation and thus to each leader the authority to redefine the ends of government. The quote Wilson doctrine marks the disintegration of constitutional standards and the beginning of moral relativism, public purposelessness and nihilism. Well, that's a stinging critique. Now, one last uh, little notion here is from Hogan who basically argues, by Wilson's own standards of oratorical statesmanship, the Pueblo speech was among the worst of the tour. Why was it the worst? Because he used that emotionalism, that appeal to the dead in the graves, and that it was all about winning an argument, not presenting an argument for the country to buy based on the merits of the reasoned argument. It was an emotional appeal. It also sheds light, says Hogan, on an important transition moment in the history of American public address. With electronic media and public opinion polling on the horizon, the progressive era had come to an end. The progressives' celebration of democratic eloquence, public deliberation, and civic engagement was giving way to an age of public relations and scientific advertising. You know, the argument here is the appeal to the people was exacerbated and helped by mass media, public opinion polling, all this stuff used to tweak opinions based on all these factors other than the reason and the power of the argument. A final word goes to President Wilson. I can predict, he said, with absolute certainty, that when it, within another generation there will be another world war if the nations of the world do not concert the method by which to prevent it. He was right. That's it for this edition of the Whistle Stop podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and it undergirds the structure of the Whistle Stop system. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our whistle-stop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a new Washington Post history section. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. And explore them you should because we are going on a bit of a whistle-stop-stop stop for the end of the summer. The next installment of the Whistle Stop podcast on the presidency will be on the 13th of September. 
Until then, thank you for being out there. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Face the Nation.